life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to Life After That. everyone. This is Jan Murray, your hostess for Life After That. Thank you for coming to another episode. Today we have Rochelle Gatewood, and she's going to talk to us today about her life with her husband, Jason, that she lost in 2018 to amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Jason was 38 at the time of his passing. Rochelle, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be doing this. We're so happy to have you as well. And if you could just start talking and just tell us a little bit about uh, you and Jason before ALS and um, what led up to, you said, I believe you said a pseudo diagnosis, what led up to the realization that he had ALS and then we'll just go from there. Okay, sounds good. Um, Yeah, so Jason and I met uh, back in 2011. We were both kind of coming off of previous relationships, Um, but it was definitely one of those love at first sight kind of meetings. We just both knew immediately that um, we were going to be together forever. Um, And... This is really hard to go back and know exactly what to share. Um, he was he was an amazing man. He was super talented. Um, he was a musician. He was an artist. He was a chef. Uh, he did like repaired musical instruments. Um, he was one of those rare people that I would describe as um, a jack of all trades and master of all. <laughs> Anything oh, wow. he did, he was kind of an expert at. So. Um, I was really just in awe of this, you know, amazing, talented, creative man. Um, He was already disabled when we met. So he had had health issues for most of his life. Um, He was born with a brain tumor and they suspect that that kind of caused some um, different kind of neurological type of issues that he never really had an official diagnosis for any of those uh, disabilities either. But he was already a wheelchair user by the time we got married. So it was a little different for us in kind of that journey of discovering that something even was wrong mm-hmm. and then working with you know doctors to figure out what that thing might be. Um, But it really started kind of around, I'd say, late 2015, early 2016. Um, He had been started to have some issues with his bladder. And we went to see a few different specialists and, you know, had a bunch of tests done. And ultimately, you know, we got a diagnosis. It's just, you know, put a label on the symptoms, neurogenic bladder, bladder. But nothing really that meant anything, you know, like, I think when you have odd symptoms like that, and especially in his case, where he had already had, uh, you know, health issues for most of his life, the doctors kind of just tended to gloss over a lot Mm -hmm. of everything. Mm -hmm. They didn't really care to try to dig down to the root cause or, you know, they didn't want to take the time to really 
you know, figure it out, I guess. It was a mystery that they didn't want to solve. Um, so he had a lot of things in the beginning that were just labels. Um, so I think the next issue that we really noticed, um, and this was the one that really got us on the track of like, we've got to figure out what's going on, is he started to have a lot of trouble with his breathing. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, so we do the whole route of going and seeing a lot of specialists and, you know, pulmonologists, and they never really figured out anything. They would, you know, do some basic EMGs, do some breathing tests. Um, they would say, oh, yep, your breathing is really bad, but there's nothing we can do about it and we don't know what's causing it. And then kind of just send us on our merry way. Hmm. Um, so obviously, you know, that was extremely frustrating and unacceptable, really, uh, as an answer. You can't just go on with life, <laughs> you know, right. accepting that as, okay, this is nothing. So, um, so we made a plan to go to the Mayo Clinic and see if we could get some answers from there. Um, we didn't really have any money <laughs> Uh, pretty much all of our money, you know, is always spent on medical equipment and doctor's appointments. And so we saved up for quite a while. It took us almost a year to save up enough to be able to make that trip. Um, that the Rochester, time... Rochester, Minnesota? Yes. Yeah. So where did you, where were y'all coming from? I failed to ask you that. Oh, yeah. We are in the Spokane, Washington area. Oh, yeah. So it was long... a pretty big trek for us. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was... Uh, he was kind of at that point in time, manual wheelchair user sometimes, electric wheelchair user sometimes, but we knew that being a huge campus, there would be, you know, a lot of um, area to cover. So right. we decided we would travel with the electric wheelchair. So that was an adventure in and of itself as well. Um, just figuring out all those logistics and um, but, you know, we were excited and we were really hopeful because you think like the Mayo Clinic, they have the answers to everything. Yep. Um, so we, uh, you know, we we got there with really high hopes, um, saw his doctor, got some tests done. But really quickly, we kind of started to feel like that wasn't going to be the place where we would get our answers either. Which is um, crazy. It is super crazy. We spent um, we spent about a month there, oh and he saw all kinds of different specialists. You know, he saw vision specialists and hearing specialists, and um, you know, neurologists and urologists, and you know, pretty much every kind of specialist you can think of. Because he he had started having you know, additional symptoms, weakness in his face, weakness in his hands. Um, obviously, his legs were a lot weaker than they had used to be. So mm -hmm. we kind of just wanted to get like the full workup. And so, yeah, they tested pretty much everything. Um, we should have stayed longer if we could have. But um, after a month, we were pretty much running out of funds, um, needed to get back home so that I could get back to work. So we made the trip home with every intention of going back at some point in time and finishing the testing. But um, when we got home, he started to deteriorate even more quickly. So we never actually made it back. 
but they still continued uh, to at least process all the tests that we had done. And, you know, they were going to send us back whatever results that they had found. Mm -hmm. And it was really disheartening a few months later when the results came back. Um, Because really, again, it was just putting labels on these things. Neurogenic bladder, neurogenic bowel, uh, left phrenic nerve paralysis, right phrenic nerve partial paralysis, and, you know, a bunch of various other things. But it didn't add up to anything. It didn't add up to some underlying cause that would make it all make sense. Um, And then it was about a month after that that we got another letter from them uh, saying that ultimately the diagnosis that they were going to go with was fibromyalgia. You're got to be kidding <laughs> and me. Our and draw- our jaws just dropped to the floor. I was like, what? This is the premier medical community in our country. And they're saying fibromyalgia is causing, you know, nerve damage and paralysis and <laughs> all these other issues. And I was just like, Wow. I mean, fibromyalgia is serious for those people who have it, but come on. Everything you're telling me is not fibromyalgia. It absolutely is not. Oh, my goodness. And yeah, like I, you know, I totally feel for the people who are suffering from that. And I know it's a, you know, a terrible and debilitating disease. But to get that as a diagnosis in our situation was really a giant slap in the face because it did not fit. It didn't fit any of the symptoms. From the Mayo in Rochester, it blows my mind, literally. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, So at that point in time, you know, we just were feeling this really heavy kind of despair almost it's like you feel like you have traversed every path you can possibly think of you know you followed every lead you've talked to the greatest medical minds in the country and nobody can figure it out so Hmm. we were kind of at this point of feeling like I don't know you know what do we do do we give up do we just keep pursuing this endless pursuit in the hopes that eventually something will get figured out. Um, So we kind of took a middle of the road approach at that point. Like we stepped back a little bit just because it was so expensive and it was so stressful, um, you know, traveling to all the different doctors and, you know, the insurance co-payments and all that kind of stuff was just a lot it was wearing us down but we did still want to get an answer if we could um so kind of as a last ditch effort we actually got a recommendation from his pulmonologist of all people who was kind of connected with a local neurologist who kind of specialized in hard to diagnose um, cases And so we went to see him um, and had a really good conversation. Surprisingly, he was probably the only doctor we had talked to that actually seemed to care. Mm -hmm. Um, He took a lot of time with us to just listen to our story and our history and, you know, all the different challenges that we had been through and um, 
you know, all the different symptoms that Jason had and like just really thorough. We had not seen any other doctors that were that thorough. But ultimately what it came down to was there were five or six tests that he said he could run, but they would not be covered by insurance and uh, ultimately would cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to get them done. And he said they were the types of tests that if they did come back positive at the state that Jason was in at that point in time, there really would be no course of action that they could take anyways. So it would be at that point getting a diagnosis just for the sake of a diagnosis. Um, But we couldn't afford that. So unfortunately, we had to just kind of give up in that pursuit and instead just kind of continue down the road of treating the different symptoms as they came up and getting the right therapies and, you know, seeing the right specialists for all of the different various things. Um, And that made it really challenging from a medical perspective, like not having an actual diagnosis because, um, you know, so much in the medical community is based off of that. So we had to fight to see specialists. We had to fight to get medical equipment. We had to fight to get the insurance to cover certain things. And then we also never had holistic care for, you know, his full, all of his needs. So it was kind of like, you know, everything was still very separated. You go and see this doctor for this and you go and see this doctor for this and you go and see this doctor for that. But nobody had his whole story. Um, So it was really challenging just to try to manage everything. Um, I can't imagine because uh, when you have the definitive diagnosis and if you're within travel distance, to an ALS clinic, a, you know, a multidisciplinary clinic, you have all the specialists together and they do have your story. So mm-hmm. I cannot, I cannot even imagine not having that. I mean, we only went to clinic, I don't know, three or four times. We went to two different ones, one in Atlanta and one in, in Nashville. And I can't imagine having to seek out all those different specialists on my own for him. Mm-hmm. separately and having to rehash the whole story every time I can't even I can't I can't imagine what you guys went through yeah it was so it was so hard and it was so isolating as well like even with something terrible like ALS there's still a sense of community that comes from having that diagnosis Mm -hmm. because you have access to support systems you have access to you know ALS doctors you have access to ALS foundations you know whatever it might be but there's a community that's around that Mm -hmm. and we didn't have any of that we were very much on our own just kind of forging our own path through the jungle it felt like you know yeah really no direction no one to guide us just trying to yeah, figure it out ourselves um that had to be so tough I'm so sorry that you had to go through it really pretty much alone that that had to be that made something that was already extremely difficult so much more difficult yeah it really did I think that was honestly one of the harder aspects of it for me Mm -hmm. was was that isolation and loneliness that came from just feeling like 
you know, nobody understands. I don't have a support system. You just, it's like you're on this other planet all by yourself and, yeah, you know, and yeah, trying to figure it out. And I will say that uh, even though we had the multidisciplinary clinic and we were able to pull in some services and equipment fairly quickly, it was still very isolating because something happens. Mm-hmm. Pe- people kind of disappear. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, we, we had uh, a really great church support group who came um, almost every week for group Bible studies and it would wear me out. I was so exhausted mm-hmm. to get ready for everybody to come in. But at the same time, I was so happy because for the first once a week, I knew I'd get to see somebody else and I wouldn't just be me and my daughter and and my husband who at that, you know, had lost his voice already. And mm-hmm. so, but for the most part, that was it. And it was really, really difficult. And yeah. um, I, so I understand the isolation. And unfortunately, after he passed away, I'm more isolated now really than I ever was. And uh, I, I'm active at work. I have my work, I have my students and I do my little side things that that keeps me out there because I can't stand to stay at home. I can't. Mm -hmm. So I stay active, but I don't have like a social group or anything like that. If I go out to eat, I go by myself. If I go to a movie, I go by myself. If I go to the beach, I go by myself. That's just the way it is. And, but I'm okay with that now. I wasn't for a while, but I am. So I do, I do understand your isolation part. What can you tell me? I mean, he already had some disabilities, but tell me, after he started getting sick, tell me what, what were some of the biggest changes that you experienced at home in caregiving, uh, in your dynamics, you know, how did this progression start to affect all of that? Yeah. Um, so before he started getting sick, um, you know, even though he did still have disabilities, he was very, independent um Mm -hmm. so you know he's still he cooked all of our dinners and um you know did all of his care I was definitely not in a caregiver role at that point in time it was 100% husband wife um dynamic between the two of us so I think yeah the same changes that everyone else goes through I had to you know start taking on uh you know prepping the meals start taking on at you know at a certain point in time bathing him dressing him feeding him you know to the point of 100 percent 20 you know 24 7 caregiving so mm-hmm. i think in yeah in that aspect um i don't view it any differently than a in a relationship where the spouse is not already disabled because i never i didn't really view him in that way right um and it was hard you know i think as anyone who's been through that situation knows it really blurs the line between spouse um, and caregiver. So that was one area that we put a lot of thoughtful consideration into is making sure that we still had time set aside every day to just be husband and wife, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to be romantic, to be intimate, to still view each other in that way. Um, Because I definitely felt myself on a regular basis kind of getting sucked into that nurse or caregiver role. And I think if we hadn't been mindful of that, we probably would have lost that, um, you know, husband, wife 
aspect of the relationship. So I'm super thankful that we, you know, took the time. And that was that was really him. It was really important to him that we maintain that. Obviously, it was important to me too, but I had so many other things on my mind. I think I would have easily let it slip, but he was bound and determined that we weren't going to let that happen. Um, and it worked. We, you know, we had a very healthy, vibrant um, husband and wife relationship up until the very end, which I'm extremely thankful for. Yeah, because yeah, that doesn't happen a lot. I, I'm here to tell you that doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> yeah, it took a lot of work and it was definitely not easy. And there were days where, you know, we had to intentionally set everything else aside and be like, you know, you know what, this is our time. We said we were going to make sure and do this every day. And you know what, no matter what, we're going to make sure and do it every day. Um, but I can, yeah, I can so easily see how, um, for probably for the majority of people that just doesn't happen. Yeah. There's just, there's just too much on your plate, too much on your mind. Um, you know, a lot of days I was up all night or, you know, maybe getting two or three hours of sleep at night and then busy all day, you know, just doing stuff, giving him a bath, fixing his food, cleaning all of his um, trach equipment or, you know, whatever it was, my days were extremely full. So it takes a lot of commitment to um, keep that aspect of the relationship a priority. Well, did he, um, did he lose the ability to use arms or hands or all that? Or was it mostly a breathing situation for him? What, what actually was his biggest problem that caused, caused issues? Um, yeah, his biggest problem, definitely, uh, like breathing. Yeah. Breathing, I think was the, the biggest one. He also completely lost the use of his legs and his trunk. Um, so he couldn't like sit up on his own or balance. Um, his arms, he could still use a little bit. Like they were very weak with limited movement, but he could still somewhat move them. Mm -hmm. um, also like his facial and neck muscles. So he did lose the ability to speak, to swallow. He was on a feeding tube. Um, so yeah, I kind of, it pretty much impacted everything, but the breathing was the one that really changed our lives the most significantly, mm -hmm. um, up until the point that he had to have the trach put in, he was still able to be somewhat independent obviously not like he was before he needed help transferring and um you know dressing and those kind of things but once he had to have the trach put in it was like a 180 in our lives that was the point in time where it became necessary for him to have 24 7 care um you know obviously for safety reasons right like you can't leave someone on a trach alone right. by themselves but also that surgery was really hard on him and he lost a lot of strength and a lot of abilities just um as a result of the surgery so for me like that was the point in time where it was like wow this is real and my life is not going to just be the same as it was before and I can't just continue on this path kind of 
you know, hoping that things will work out or hoping that it will can just kind of remain the same. It was real and it was scary. And I knew that there were things that I was going to have to sacrifice or give up in order to make sure that he was taken care of. Um, so that kind of opened the path for us of caregiving and trying mm -hmm. to find someone to caregive while I continued to work, which was a really huge um, piece of that journey for us. I like, we didn't have a lot of money to begin with, and I was the sole provider for our mm -hmm. household. Um, he did get disability, but he got like the smallest amount that they will give you. And half of it went to his ex-wife for child support, which I don't even understand that whole situation, but it was what it was. So like $350 a month is what we got from him. So it was wow. really a heavy burden on me, you know, financially to support the household. And with him now needing full-time care, we had to figure out like, how are we going to do this? There's mm -hmm. no way financially that I can just quit my job and become his caregiver. We live in a state where um, family care caregivers don't get paid. So I would have had to, you know, do it for free. So that wasn't an option. Um, we couldn't afford to hire someone privately. Um, and even if we could, there was a caregiver shortage in our area during that time. So we had attempted, you know, just to see if we could make it work to put some ads out there, see if we could just hire privately um, mm -hmm. with zero response. So that was seeming like not an option. And then we tried to go down the um, Medicaid route, and that was super challenging as well. Um, they don't really provide caregivers that are trained to take care of someone with a trach. And so a lot of what we heard when we were interviewing agencies was, you know, yes, we can send someone in, but they can't do this. They can't do this. They can't do that or that or that. And it was like, okay, so we're going to hire someone to come in and be a babysitter. And then when I get home from work, I still have to do all the care, all the med prep, all the food prep, you know, all the cleaning and bathing and everything like basically this caregiver person's just a warm body to fill right. a seat but mm. ultimately we kind of came to the conclusion that that's what we were going to have to do it was kind of our only financially viable option right so we tried for a few months i think it was in March or April that we hired someone um, and just finding someone that was willing to take us on as a case, um, you know, because of his health conditions was a challenge, but we were able to find, you know, one person out of all the agencies in the whole area, one person who seemed to have the skills to be able to do it and the willingness to be able mm -hmm. to do it mm -hmm. um you know so so we tried that for a while and it was really challenging they're you know they were unreliable sometimes they wouldn't show up or they would you know come late and leave early and at the same time i'm still attempting to be a good employee at my job right. but 
every time, you know, they call in sick, I have to call in sick. If they're late, I have to be late. Right. So it was not helping things at all at my job. And it had kind of come to a point where they were like, listen, we can't keep you on if this is going to continue to be the situation, we need to have, you know, stability from you and a commitment to a 40 hour work week and, you know, eight to five hours and, you know, all the normal stuff. Mm -hmm. So we uh, tried and tried and tried. And eventually that whole situation just entirely fell apart our caregiver quit she went to a different agency we couldn't find anyone to replace her and ultimately it came down to um I lost my job anyways and became Mm. his his full-time caregiver which was terrifying Mm -hmm, (laughs) um mm -hmm. I had a lot of kind of emotional breakdowns during that point in time Mm -hmm. because well, for one, I I loved my job. I had been there for almost 10 years, and I just couldn't envision my life not being there. Like, right. you know, this is my, my stability, my comfort zone. Um, but then there were so many other things that we lost at that point in time. You know, also our income, our health insurance, our life insurance, so many of those benefits that are hugely valuable, but you kind of maybe take for granted until they're not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was, I was panicking. Absolutely. Of course. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know anyone who wouldn't panic. I think in that situation, it was a lot to take mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. and a lot to try to navigate, but Jason was so amazing the whole time. He's just reassuring me that, you know, it's like, I don't know how, but we're going to make it. And as long as we have each other, everything's going to be fine. And somehow it was like looking back on that period of time in our lives, it's pretty much all just a blur. But what I do remember is that some way, somehow, every time there was a bill that was due, the money was there. And, you know, every time we needed gas or groceries or whatever it was, the money was there. And I honestly don't remember where it came from. Mm-hmm. There were just some some different things that happened, some unexpected things. But every time that I just had that panicky feeling of like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? It all just ended up being okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We had that similar. I mean, I had to leave my job almost immediately because he was uh, progressing fairly quickly at the beginning. Mm. And uh, our income went from six figures combined a year to zero overnight. Yeah. Uh, And we did pretty much lose everything financially. It devastated us. And then I was financially devastated again once he passed away. So I Mm -hmm. had to, I had to rebuild my life completely, but I, I, I get that. But at the same time, just like you said, somehow we made it. We had people who did, I mean, people I didn't even know who sent money, who heard about our plight or, you know, that kind of thing. There was always, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was church people or someone who heard through them or they just heard, I don't know, but somehow, yeah. you know, and and his mom was wonderful. She since passed away and my mom and my stepdad helped. I mean, there was, 
uh, it was hard. I still had two kids at home too. So it was oh, like, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, I, I don't know. You know, I thank God for that help. I mean, oh, I've been, absolutely. Now I've gotten angry with God after all of this and I do have an enormous, uh, number of questions for the big guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and I've changed. It's completely changed my faith. I still have faith. I'm not saying I don't have faith. I still have faith. I still love Yeah. I still love God. I'm still, you know, I still have faith, but my, the way I believe the thing, I, I'm just very different than I used to be. I don't take mm -hmm. everything at face value. I, uh, I'm just a different person. I, I mean, how can you go through this and not be a different person? That's all. Oh, you say. absolutely cannot. Yeah. I'm a completely different person as well. I think going through that, I, it definitely taught me how, um, not sure of the right term like how possible it is to do life even in the most challenging situations like before all of that I was a planner I was a future thinker I was a you know got to be in control of everything I was a I want to have my finances you know all stable and figured out like stability that mm -hmm. was kind of my life mantra I just want everything to be good and stable mm -hmm. and obviously when you're going through something like that stability uh, that all goes out is, the window <laughs> yeah like stability is the farthest from reality that you can you know even possibly imagine and but prior to going through that to, like that was my literal worst nightmare and I could not imagine the possibility of me surviving something like that like to me that was just earth shattering world ending my life was going to be over but I've definitely learned that even in the most chaotic and uncertain situations you will still survive mm -hmm. because life just keeps moving forward and you'll figure it out because you have to figure it out. You don't it, have a choice. Exactly. Exactly. But, so, well, yeah, I I view a lot of things in life differently now after learning that. Um, I kind of just take it as it goes. And I don't have that, like, fear of the unknown future that I yeah. used to. Because I yeah. know nothing worse than that could come my way. So I know I can handle it. Yeah, that's the same thing I've heard from other guests as well. And I feel the same. So Rachel, with that, I'm going to close out this episode. And I want to okay. invite everyone to come back in two weeks. And uh, Rachel, um, excuse me, Rochelle will, <laughs> no will be with us again. And uh, she will talk about her after, after Jason's passing and how she's uh, found a new lease on life and continued. So I want to thank you, Rochelle, for joining us today. Happy you'll yeah. be with us again for another episode. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is really great. Thank you. We'll see you all in two weeks.